You are listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope that this content is edifying to your walk and an encouragement to your heart. Let's join Pastor Mike as he brings us the word. We're in Daniel. We're wrapping up Daniel chapter 3 this morning. So if you have your Bible, you want to turn there. If you have your uh, mobile device and you want to go to the Version Bible app, you can go to the events menu and click on Emmaus Road Church and follow along in my uh, sermon notes there. But let's just get a brief recap. We're far enough into Daniel now. We're six weeks in. It would help us to just kind of get a running start again to remember where we've been. And so Israel's sin and their idolatry, God was warning them through the prophets again and again and again for for many decades. And um, God uses the things of this world, even evil rulers, pagan empires, even dirty Gentile empires from the perspective of the Jews, to accomplish his purposes. And the discipline of Israel as a nation was one of those things that God accomplished through this pagan empire. In 586 B.C., Babylon sacked Jerusalem. There was the complete destruction of Solomon's temple, which is one of the wonders of the ancient world. They carried off all the vessels and instruments of worship from the temple along with many captives. And that's where we picked up in Daniel chapter 1. We're seeing uh, Daniel and his three friends carried off into captivity. They were specifically targeting young people in order to condition them and assimilate them into the pagan empire. And among those, obviously, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And God gave these obedient young men grace and wisdom as they then had to navigate this reconditioning program in Babylon. They had to figure out how to... Stay true to the one true and living God and honor him in the midst of this new reality. And he gave them wisdom and grace. And and God used Daniel to bring both uh, a dream and an interpretation of the dream to the king in chapter 2. We saw that. Um, And now we're in the second half of chapter 3 and we're dealing with another story. The story about the fiery furnace and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. uh, Which was punishment. This was the threat in the first half of chapter 3. You, you have to, when you hear the music, you have to bow down, fall down, and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, which ultimately was an image of himself. So you're, you're not just worshiping the image, you're worshiping the emperor, as it were. And last week we talked about the fact that man is an incurably religious creature. Can't take the religiousness out of man. It's inevitable that everybody bows at some shrine, even if it's the shrine of self. Uh, secular humanism is a religion. And it's either the worship of the one true God or it's some false substitution. Everybody worships something. And we talked about worship is not something that can be commanded. It's not something that you can demand from another person. It has to be given freely or it ceases to be worship. But we must never compromise as God's people. We, we must refuse to bow to worthless, worthless idols despite whatever pressure is leveled against us. And, and, and as I've, I've been thinking about this this week, looking at Daniel and the timing of the Lord in leading us into this book, I think that it's his good and perfect will that we would study this. We need the lessons that are taken from the text of Daniel in these days. And I, and I think we're going to need them even more as we move forward in time. As I've studied this week, at, at times my, my own heart has grown weary and o- overly sad and just burdened at how many Christians I, I know personally, I see around me uh, in sim- similar situations now, 
And as I look back in history of the church the last 2,000 plus years, I can see uh, how many Christians have failed to, to stand strong in these moments. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood strong. We're going to see this in the text, but I can look back and I can see failure and failure and failure. I also see highlights. I see uh, the, the Reformation uh, folks who were, who were burned at the stake. I see, I, I see a whole litany of lives that, were, uh, that stood strong until the last breath. But I also see the failures in the church and the weakness, and, and it's made my heart heavy this week. In fact, I wanted to just read you an excerpt. Um, I know I, I promoted this book a while back, and I would encourage you to get a copy if you don't have one. It's called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. And Nick and his wife and their three sons were, um, they were missionaries in Africa, and he would, uh, they were based out of Kenya, I think, and he would go into Mogadishu alone. And then come back after being there for a month undercover as a missionary trying to uh, make contacts with believers or make inroads with Muslims. And, and as they were in Africa for many years, they lost one of their sons there to sickness. And, and after having been there just for many years, came home to the United States as broken, feeling like they had wasted those years. They hadn't really accomplished anything for the Lord or for the kingdom uh, during their time in Africa. And, and so... As Nick and his wife were talking, they, you know, they said, you know what we really need to do right now as we look around at the world is I, I need to travel to the persecuted church around the world. And what I want to do is I want to go to them and I want to ask them, how can we help you? We, we have all this freedom. We have all these resources in the United States. We're this flourishing, vibrant church here. How can we help you? And what actually happened to Nick was as he began to travel the world and meet in secret with persecuted believers... And hear the stories in, in nations that are no longer openly persecuted, but hear the stories of fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers who were. Nick began to realize that God wasn't calling him to figure out how we could help the persecuted church. He had sent Nick to the persecuted church to find out how they could help us. Because we're the ones that need help. We're not really prepared for that kind of persecution. And so that book, The Insanity of God, it's an incredible book. I, I do highly recommend it to you. It will, it will rock you. Let me just read this excerpt, um, page 182 to, 181 to 182. He just says, Much of what I heard from believers throughout Eastern Europe over the next several days echoed the stories I've been told by the Russians and the Ukrainians. But the most disheartening place that I visited, which will go unnamed here, was a former communist bloc nation where the church actually suffered very little overt persecution. And that seemed like a positive thing until I found out why it was true. My interviews there revealed that from the beginning of the communist rule in that nation, that this nation's churches quickly and completely embraced the verses that Paul wrote in Romans 13 about honoring and obeying the authority of earthly rulers. In fact, the churches emphasized these verses so much that they ignored and failed to obey many other scriptures, including some of the central teachings of Christ. For example, once, once that nation's churches have made their, what he calls their go-along, get-along strategy for survival, the central Christian tenet of their doctrines and, and their faith, they pretty much forgot the last instructions that Jesus had given his followers to go and make disciples. And since the government had concluded that the church posed very little threat and would probably soon just wither and die, there was no need for concerted persecution to try to control the believers. These believers had failed to share their faith and had failed to speak for themselves. 
They failed to speak to others. When thousands of Jews were slaughtered just down the block, just blocks from their church's headquarters, they allowed the communist leadership to share space inside their denominational offices. Why would they ever face overt persecution when they had already surrendered almost everything? So remember that one of the main themes of the book of Daniel is that little compromises over time result in big consequences. Nobody sets out to make a big compromise, but it's the little, it's the little compromises that result in big consequences. And as the church in any age, in any place, gives ground to false religions, gives ground to false beliefs, gives ground to the pagan culture, it, it, we, we can't fail. We have to push hard. We cannot fail to stand in the place of facing sin and facing evil and opposing those things head on in the power of the Spirit. We, we've already given ground. And at some point in that process, as you study this, it can become overwhelming because the, the weight of temptation to capitulate to the culture and to compromise can just become so heavy. I don't know if you feel that in these days. I, I do. I feel the weight of the, 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 the desire of my flesh to compromise for the sake of acceptance. It's there, and I have to fight it every day. But there have been many of our forebears who stood in the face of such mounting oppression and have not given in. And we need their example. I, I think of men in the early church like Athanasius, who was an early church father. He was a guy that was really concerned with the purity of the doctrine of Christ and the divinity of Christ in particular because he was faced with attacks from Gnosticism. If you don't know what that is, it's a pagan belief uh, that all material, all matter is inherently evil and corrupt, and therefore only that which is spirit is pure and good. And so Jesus could not have had a physical body of flesh because that would have been tainting God with evil. That's a Gnostic belief, and it's a heresy. And so Athanasius was fighting this, this idea coming into the church, and he was constantly contending for the faith. And so the story is somebody came to Athanasius and they said, Athanasius, don't you know? Haven't you heard? The emperor is against you. The bishops of the church are against you. The whole church is against you. Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And his response was this. Then I am against the whole world. <laughs> I love that. It's so simple. It's like he just looked up from what he was doing. It's like, okay. And he went back to what he was doing. That's, that's just the reality. That's the reality. And I don't know about you, but as things devolve around us at this rapid rate, there are many days I feel like Athanasius. I feel like the world is against us. This whole Jesus thing, staying true to his word, has me in the position of feeling like I'm against the whole world some days. I'm tempted to despair in those moments. Maybe you are too. I don't know what your, your, your experience has been in these days, but I feel overwhelmed. I, just some days have to cry out to Jesus for strength and fresh filling of the Spirit and remember that, that one faithful soul plus God is a supermajority. Right? One faithful soul plus God is a supermajority. And then I'm renewed in my stand against the world because the truth is some things matter more than life. Some things matter more than life. So let's pick up where we left off last week. We're looking at our friends who refuse to bow to idolatry. In the text of Daniel 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 19 and go all the way down to verse 30. 
says that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come, come here. And since Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had, had, had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their house is laid in ruins, for there's no other god who's able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's go back and let's look at this. Let's take this apart. Look at verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, anger is a common emotional response to the failure to get what we want. Anger is a common emotional response. Anger is also a God-given emotion. And even God becomes angry over certain things. So anger is not necessarily bad. Anger is not necessarily sin. Scripture tells us it's what we do with our anger that determines whether it crosses over into sin. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul writes, do not be, he says, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So anger is not inherently sinful. So, so there's anger, but then there's also this thing called righteous indignation or righteous anger. And it's typically a response emotionally to mistreatment or to being insulted or, or just the malice of someone else against you, right? It's akin to what we call uh, a sense of injustice. It's an anger that's directed towards righteousness. Righteousness is the goal of righteous indignation. But... Nebuchadnezzar is not really, he, he's not really in any either category. This is a self-centered adult temper tantrum. This is, I'm, he's, I'm, I'm angry about these three righteous men that won't bow down to me or my golden image. And when adults throw temper tantrums, it, it can become very dangerous. Can't you see that in our culture? Right? 
it becomes dangerous. Like, I don't want to be on the street when a group of adults throw a temper tantrum. It gets violent. So the king orders the furnace heated seven times hotter. And I missed that in my clothes last week as we were talking about the typology of Daniel 3. And Daniel is a type of the church. The seven is a significant number in this scene as a type. Seven years of tribulation, the, the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week. We'll, we'll unpack all that when we get to chapter 9 together. But look at verse 20 down to 23. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, he said to the Navy SEALs, you know, the special platoon, like the crack platoon, you guys come over here and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. He didn't want any mistakes. He wanted to make sure they were dead. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the fire, the burning fiery furnace. And because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. And all week long, all I can hear in my head is, she's a witch, burn her! Because we need obligatory Monty Python quotes on Sunday morning. But the threat was real. The threat was real, and the sentence carried out immediately. There was no delay. There's no appeal. And then you consider the furnace itself. Now, I grew up uh, in a house where my dad's a blue-collar worker. He worked in a factory my whole life, 40-something years. And not just working in a factory. He worked rotating shifts. So one week he'd be on uh, day shift. One week he'd be on evening shift. The next week he'd be on midnight shift. And then he'd get four days off. And then he'd do that rotation again. My whole life. He's got an incredible work ethic. But the one time I ever went into the factory where he worked at Owens Brockway in Atlanta, I never wanted to go back again because it was a tour of the factory. And I got to see what my dad did every day. Uh, the factory where my dad worked was a place where they took all this sand and, and raw material and they ran it through blast furnaces to melt it down and then to shape it into glass jars and bottles that we buy our stuff in the store in. Coke bottles, pickle jars, all that stuff. And so all that stuff comes down the line. It's melted into the, literally into lava, into molten glass. And then it goes through these machines that have different imprints or shapes, and it, and it molds the glass into the shape of the jar, and then that comes off the line and has to cool. And, and his job was, if the machine that, that stamps out the forms gets backed up, well, what happens is all the lava just backs up. And then it starts to burn through the machine, and then it starts to burn through the floor of the factory. And so he, he had to make sure it was clear. And I'm like, no, thank you. I, I like living well. I like having lots of stuff, but no, no. I can't believe. I, I just remember being astonished that my dad worked in proximity to that all day long for 40-something years. It's crazy to me. I don't even like to get too close to the bonfire in the backyard. Like, man, I can feel that. I can feel it singeing the hair off my legs. I'm too close, right? That's crazy. This, this, would have been, this furnace would have been built for the purpose of making this, probably making this statue, uh, given the size of it, that it was, that it was big enough to drop things into the top of it. We also know that um, following the defeat of the Assyrian Empire in 612 BC, Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt Babylon on a grand scale. And we know from archaeology, that it's estimated that 15 million baked bricks were used in the construction of official buildings. The British Museum today has examples of those bricks stamped with Nebuchadnezzar's name that are still in existence today. And these sun-dried bricks were really easy to make, but they would disintegrate if there was a heavy rainfall. And so what they did, 
was they burned the bricks in the kiln and they became virtually indestructible. And so th this, is the, this is the idea, right? This wasn't the only time that a furnace or kiln was used for this purpose in Babylon either to, to execute people. We know from archaeology that one of the earlier excavations of Babylon, they discovered some strange building uh, that initially appeared to be a firing kiln. Um, and then they found a cuneiform inscription and it said this, this is the place of burning where men who blasphemed the gods of the Chaldeans died. So this isn't the only time that this happened. This became, either had been already or became a, a very efficient means of execution for people who were not obeying the emperor. And nobody's suggesting that what they found was the actual furnace into which these three were thrown. But it does demonstrate this, the scriptural account is consistent with the religious customs of Babylon. They would throw you into a fiery kiln or furnace to execute you for sedition or failure to worship. And throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace would just complete the picture here of Nebuchadnezzar's self-aggrandizement and self-exaltation because self-focus will consume the people around you. That's what it does. When we get so consumed with ourselves, that begins to spread beyond us and consume others as well. I mean, think of how hot it had to be to incinerate uh, these people just by their proximity. Some, some commentators say that not, not only did the, 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 the soldiers, the armed escort, catch fire and die, but that they were incinerated. That's crazy. They were just they were cremated on the spot. Verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste, declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they said to the king, yes, king, that's true. As my daughter would say, facts. Stop saying that. Um, and he answered and said, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth one is like a son of the gods. I mean, seriously? That's just, like, first of all, there shouldn't be anybody walking around in the fire at all. And we jump right over the astonishment that all three violators of the king's edict are alive in the midst of the furnace that incinerated the guards just now. But Nebuchadnezzar is far more astonished that there are four individuals in the midst of the fire rather than three. But this is a, what we call a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And, and Jesus, uh, I can give you examples. Jesus appears to Moses in the burning bush, uh, appeared to Joshua before they crossed over the Jordan River. Several times in the Old Testament, Jesus appears prior to his incarnation. He appears. And, and what's confusing for a lot of us is that the word angel is used. Angel is a word that just means messenger. Okay? So it doesn't necessarily mean the classification of beings we've come to call angels. But so, so Jesus is appearing here. Nebuchadnezzar's description is he's like a son of the gods, which is not that far off. And remember his words just moments before. Remember what he just said? And who, what God is able to deliver you out of my hands? Well, Nebi, now you know. Right? Now you know. Verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. So, so the king himself is going to the door. It wouldn't have been the entrance into which they were thrown. It would have been a side door used for maintenance or cleaning at times when the furnace was not in use. And then the satraps, prefects, governors, the king's counselors all gathered together. And they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. This is what's crazy to me. The hair on their heads was not singed. 
Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had even come upon them. I mean, don't forget that the guards were incinerated to ash as they threw these men into the furnace. Now, many, many of you young adults in the room have been to my house when we have had uh, bonfires some, some evenings, and, and everybody goes home with the smell of smoke on them, right? Everybody goes home. These three had none. They had none. It would have been miraculous for these men to simply have survived, to come out uh, burned but alive. But see, that's the kind of thing that skeptics point to. That's the kind of thing that they love to point and attribute to other factors. God wanted to make sure nobody could justify this or reason this away in any way whatsoever. With the guards burned to ash, there's no way for these three men to survive that fire and that heat. And not only did they survive it, they came through unscathed. Not a hair singed, not even the smell of smoke. That's God, folks. That's God. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this. Look at verse 28. We'll go down to 30. <clears throat> he answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, who set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god other than their own god. Therefore I make this decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there's no other god who's able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon, right? So, again, angel, he uses the word angel, that's messenger, not necessarily what we call an angel, it was Jesus. But the king gets his assessment right in verse 28. God is the one who saved them. That assessment is correct. And he goes overboard in verse 29 because that's like, that's Nebuchadnezzar's MO. He goes overboard, right? And so he turns into the mafia. He's like, you mess with my people. I'm going to kill your family, right? It's just, it, it, he's always going to the nth degree. And then in verse 30, it's like, well, that's a heck of a way to get a promotion, right? So here they are. They're elevated in status again. They've come through this situation by the hand of God, and, and they're elevated now. Right? Think about the scene played out in front of so many high-ranking officials gathered from the entirety of the kingdom of Babylon. And this would have been something they'd have talked about for years to come. No doubt it gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego many opportunities to witness to God's love and God's power and His truth. Man, what an open door now for them to talk openly about what God had done in their lives and who He is and what He's like. As I was thinking about all this uh, last night, a pattern occurred to me. I was finishing up the sermon, reflecting on the parallels between the book of Daniel and what's happening in our world today. And the Hebrew word babal means confusion. It's the root word of babel, um, which is the, the, where the tower was built in Genesis 11, and then what became the central part of Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon. But the, the, it's interesting to me that um, in this land of confusion, Babel, right, the, the sound, the music was the thing that got their attention. The, the use of music to connect on an emotional level to prepare people to engage in some action, in this case, worship. And, and I'm, I'm not, I know you're saying that's an inherently bad thing because we do that as the church, don't we? We use music to, to, to enter into worship and prepare our hearts for the word. 
But so then comes the worship, and then comes the bowing down, the prostrating, a sign of submission to the object of worship. And so here's the here's the pattern I see in our culture. So many people expressing their every whim, every thought, every opinion today. It's created confusion. Most most people I know it's like I don't even want to get on social media. It's just too much. It's just too much. I'm going to say something that I think, and then 800 people are going to disagree with me. I just don't even want to do that. So, so much confusion. And so many people in our culture forsaking critical thinking and logic, and they just go straight to emotion. This is just our culture now. We go straight to emotion. And this is why music is such a useful tool for good and bad, because the person is interacting with something that's designed to register with the soul at an emotional level, and then usually the content, the words, are overlooked, or that maybe we consider them later. If you're like me, I listened to a lot of songs in the 80s, and then in the early 2000s, when I started having kids and I was playing some of that music, I went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What did, that, what did he just say? Right? So it only took me like two decades to figure out that what I'd been listening to wasn't good. Because I was in it emotionally. Right? We, that's, what, that's what happens to us. And from that place, it's just a short hop to worship, giving your time, energy, thoughts, and devotions to something. And that's what I see happening. So Satan creates all this confusion around us in a culture that's largely lost the ability to think rationally or to reason. And, and so now we're a culture that's led by our emotion and our feelings, increasingly ready to bow down at the feet of a coming leader. You see this? We're, we're ready. We'll reach a point of desperation where we'll be ready to bow down. So take a sampling this week as you go out of here what messages are prominent in the culture around us, especially in the media. There's a strong undercurrent that's anti-Christian, and it's growing, and that's not going away. It's not going away. I think about these three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were persecuted because of their standards. They had standards that they wouldn't give up. They wouldn't. They, they refused to bow to this image. Their faith in God would not allow them to do so. Their standards before God made them different from all the people around them that day. I just say to you, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we should have a different standard of living than the people around us in the world. Colossians 3, 1-3 says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We need to have standards. They were persecuted for their standards. They were also persecuted for their Savior. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he gave them a second chance. He knows exactly why these young men are refusing to bow, and he mocks the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What God can deliver you out of my hands? He demands that they bow to his will instead of the will of God. And just as a note to us, the believer should walk in total submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, not, not the demands of the culture. It will always be like this in the world. You will always be pitted against the will of friends, the will of society, the will of culture, and all of that will be against the will of God. And you will have to make decisions that are hard decisions. You will be persecuted because of your Savior. So they're persecuted because of their standards, persecuted because of their Savior. In fact, Jesus said, think about what Jesus said in Matthew 10. He said, don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father. And a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I don't know that one's such a big like, stretch. 
person's enemies will be those of their own household. Whoever loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves their son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Persecuted for their standards, their Savior, and the stand that they took. Because even when threatened with a horrible death, these men refused to bow or bend the knee. Persecuted because of their stand. They took their stand in spite of personal cost. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be immovable in your convictions. Now here's what we've got to get a hold of today. If we're going to live for Jesus in this world, if we're going to be His alone, if we're going to refuse to let this world squeeze us and shape us into its mold, we are going to suffer persecution. There's no if, and, or but. If we're going to refuse to be shaped by the world, we will suffer persecution. It's just to what degree? The only question is to what degree? We've got to get a hold of that. That's what the Bible teaches us. 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes, he says in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will have happy birthday sung to them at Red Robin. Not what the text says. Although that's probably going to happen to you. He says, everybody, and I hope this is true of everybody in the room, who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted will be persecuted he says while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived don't pay attention to them don't go yeah but they don't have to be persecuted they have it easy so don't 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 even think about it just focus in peter writes in his first letter first peter chapter 4 verse 12 he says beloved don't be surprised at the fiery trial, fiery, <laughs> well, we just, I mean, fiery furnace, right? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. See, it feels strange to us because we've never, we've never had to deal with this before. Don't be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. There's a reward for those who suffer persecution. Be glad. Be glad. Rejoice. And here's the bottom line, my friends. If you and I are going to live godly, if we're going to live for Jesus, we're going to be persecuted. There will be furnaces of criticism, furnaces of intimidation, furnaces of hatred, furnaces of temptation, Furnaces of trials like you can't even imagine. And that's just the way that it is. It's just the way that life is. And for some of us, it might even mean the losing of our physical lives. It might mean that. In Daniel's day, it was a religious system mixed with humanistic philosophy backed by a thorough system of indoctrination from the time children were young and that included continual submission and obedience to the state. Guess what? We're headed in the same direction, folks. 
You take our kids when they're five and thoroughly indoctrinate them until they're 18, and then they go to university and it's more the same. We're headed in the same direction. But listen, don't forget, one faithful soul plus God is a supermajority. We feel like we're the minority. We feel like we're all alone. God is bigger. I'm flashing back to veggie tales with my kids when they were really small. God is bigger than the boogeyman. Bigger than the... Godzilla. God, yeah, it alarms me that you know the lyrics to that. Some of you never heard it. God bless you. You might be better off. I don't know. Sometimes when this story is read or told, we can get the impression that because God rescued them, they didn't suffer. Right? That would be the wrong impression. Because it's most assuredly not the case. Their suffering came before they were ever thrown into the furnace. They were human beings just like us. Presumably with families of their own at this point. We don't know for certain. But you need to know that from the moment that the edict was given, that they must bow down to this image, they were in mental and emotional agony because they knew what was coming. They knew what was coming. They knew that they could not bow down to this idol made of gold. This was, to that moment, the hardest test of loyalty to God that they had ever faced in their lives. Ever. And just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Imagine the hardship and the emotional turmoil of knowing that, that this thing's going to happen next Wednesday and you have to bow down or you will be killed. Because on one side of the equation is position, family, security, wealth, my life. And on the other side of the equation is God. So what am I going to do? What am I going to choose? One faithful believer standing for righteousness plus God's spirit in him is always a supermajority. Don't lose sight of that. We desperately need to know and constantly remember that Man purposes the furnace for Christ's followers to overwhelm us to the point of compromise. That threat of death, that threat of harm is meant to overwhelm us and, and put a heavy burden on us so that we'll compromise. Satan comes along. His purpose in the, the furnace is for Christ's followers to be consumed. He wants to kill us. He wants to consume us. He wants to get us out of the way so his agenda can go forward. But God's purpose in the furnace is for his children to be refined and our faith to be deepened and that we would become more like Jesus. God has a purpose in letting us go through trials and, and situations just like this. See, God didn't deliver them from the fire. He delivered them through the fire. He does not deliver us from having to make our own decisions, even when they're incredibly difficult decisions. And it's not because he lacks power. It's because he wants us to develop strength of character. He wants us to, to develop a resolve in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this, this is so that we go on to make good and responsible decisions from that point forward. As we honor him with our lives, as we honor him with the way that we uh, steward what he's given us. And he's not going to decide for you. You're not a robot. You're not a small little child incapable of making a decision. He, he will not save us from our decisions or from the need to make them, to do that would be unloving. It would be unloving of him. And so the greater reward waits at the end of the great exchange. We talk about the great exchange being 
Jesus' righteousness for our sin, right? And that, that exchange is ongoing. It happened at the cross, and we're saved when we put our faith in Christ. But there's this ongoing exchange every day, continuing my sin for his righteousness, my weakness for his strength, this exchange in prayer where I'm bringing my petitions and my worries and my concerns, and he's giving me his peace. This exchange is happening all the time in the life of the Christian. And God's in the, he's intent on teaching us delayed gratification. He's intent on that. That doesn't mean that he fails to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory as we have needs in this life. What it means is that what is coming to us, what is coming to us as our inheritance in the Father, it is the fulfillment of every longing of the human heart expressed in ways that you cannot even fathom. What is coming is infinitely greater than anything we can imagine. And I have a pretty vivid imagination. But if we're to take a lesson from the section of Daniel and from the lives of these three men, rest assured that it is this. For many Christians down through history and even at this present moment, the doorway to glory includes persecution unto death. For many in the church, we are a unique biosphere of Christianity in, in Western culture, unlike many of our brothers and sisters around the world who already and have for many decades and even centuries experienced open persecution. If we're going to take any lesson from Daniel, it's that God is able to deliver. Make no doubt about it. God is able to deliver, but he's not obligated to deliver. Right? That's the testimony of these three men to the king. We know that God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to compromise our convictions. And there have been much smarter, braver, wiser, bolder Christians whose lives have been snuffed out of the hands of angry sinners than we who sit here today, I can assure you. Right now, I'm anticipating that maybe some of you are feeling down or frustrated or even agitated towards me because I'm telling you these things and I'm, and I'm telling you that persecution is a reality and that it's coming. And, and for, for talking about the coming reality of open persecution of the church and our nation now, what I want you to remember is that it, it is my responsibility. I have thought long and hard about this again this week. It's my responsibility before God to prepare the church or this small portion of the church for what is coming in the days ahead. Because I have to stand for him, before him and give an account. And I believe that this is the word that God has directed us to in these days. I think about uh, Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma. And what he said, he said, how great are my obligations to spend and to be spent for Christ. What a privilege to be allowed to serve him. But in myself, I am absolute nothingness. And soon we shall be in heaven. So let us live as we shall then wish we had done. Did you catch that? Let us now live as we then will wish we had done. You're going to get to glory. You're going to be with Jesus. You're going to look back and say, and I missed so many opportunities to honor Christ. I chose my flesh. I chose my comfort. I chose compromise. I chose the culture. Let us live now in such a way that as we look back in glory, we'll go, thank you, Jesus, for the grace to stand for you. It's an expression of the heart that's the same expression of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Frantic. What do we do? The sky is falling. 
sky is falling. What do we do? Let me tell you what we do. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. That's what we do. That's what we do. We go out of here and we obey the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Some? Most? No. All authority. All authority. This is, this is a moment of being deputized, folks. Right? All authority has been given to Jesus. And then he says, go, therefore. You, 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 you. All of you. I'm sending you because I have the authority to send you. I deputize you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey or observe all that I've commanded you. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Folks, if we're not doing that, we're just shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. It may look pretty, but the whole thing's going down. We've got to obey the Great Commission. He says, Behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Have we reached the ending of the age? When did that happen? Okay, then he's still with us. His spirit's still in us. We need to make disciples. That has never, for one second, in any context, ceased to be the mission and direction of God's people, even in the midst of persecution. In fact, I would argue from a study of persecution down through the history of the church that actually the church is more on mission, more focused when we suffer persecution. Where we tend to get off script and off God's agenda is when we get comfortable. So, Jesus said he would never leave us or forsake us. Obedience is the order of the day. Obedience might get you fined. Obedience might get you incarcerated. At some point, obedience to Jesus might get you beaten or caned or even killed. The question you and I have to wrestle with before God in our moment in history is this. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? God, I pray right now that you would answer that question in the heart of every person. And that they would answer it before you in the affirmative, if they can. The Spirit's regenerating, working in them. Every soul in this room that claims the name of Jesus would say to you, yes, Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy. It's so great to sing songs. We sing those words, you are worthy. You're worthy of your name. You're worthy of all our praise. And then we get out, outside these four walls and we're confronted with a decision an opportunity to compromise. Lord, help us to be consistent with what we're saying. Help us to live consistently with what we say we believe. Help us to make disciples who make disciples until you come back for your church. And we love you. We thank you. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're going to live for Jesus in this world, if we're going to be his alone, if we're going to refuse to let this world squeeze us into its mold, then we will suffer persecution. Man purposes the furnace to overwhelm us. Satan purposes the furnace to consume us. But God purposes the furnace to refine us and make us more like Jesus. So go forth in the grace and strength of our God. Make disciples of all nations in the power of the Spirit. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.